Hey there, this is Mason Gordon, and you're listening to Soilcraft's Regenerative Agronomy Podcast, where we aspire to bring transparency to farmers through education. And now we'll head over to the studio where you'll meet the team and we'll introduce this episode's topic. All right, welcome here for the first time to the studio. We're here with Denver Black, Trent Graybill, and our founder, Dwayne Bowman. Today in this episode, we're going to be talking about Soilcraft's history and the vision of the company. And going back in Proverbs chapter 29, verse 18, it says, where there's no vision, the people perish, but he that keepeth the law, happy is he. You know, we think vision is, is very important for that purpose. Without a vision, people fail, people perish, is what it says. So we want to try today and just lay out very clearly what is Soilcraft's vision and how we came to be, how it came to be that. And so we're going to start out with our founder, Dwayne, and he's going to give us a little story on all the way back to Ohio, where he started there, uh, started farming, and up to today. And we're going to have a little conversation about that story, and then we're going to introduce our vision statement and talk a little bit about where we're going and where we're headed. So Dwayne, I'm going to turn it over to you and uh, let you tell us a little story. Thank you, Mason. To give us the story of Soilcraft, we have to go back to Ohio. I had a company called Treaty Soil. But before that, I was raised on a farm. And my dad was raised on a farm before that. And he remembered in the World War when they got their first tractor. But to bring us up, I would like to focus on 1981. I was farming with my dad, and I would have been a conventional farmer. By saying that, what I mean is the next best chemical was awesome because it made my job easier. And I knew nothing about fertilizer. We just did what the fertilizer dealer told us to do. But what happened in 1981 was we had a wet spring. We didn't get corn planted until June 7th or after. And you want to stop planting then, not start. And the worst thing that happened then was after that, we had a dry spell in the summer, and then we had an early frost. So what we had was acres and acres of wet, immature corn. And immature corn does not dry down well. But we got through that harvest, and that was the first year, the only year, I believe, that my dad ever lost money farming. But it was just a combination of things that happened all the same year. But what happened then was he went to the fertilizer dealer to ask them what he should put on for next year's crop. And they gave him the same answer they did every other year. It was like about 300 pounds of potassium chloride and monomonium phosphate. That just didn't seem to make sense. Because we got a half a crop off, and why do you put more on? They said, well, you need to build your soil. But that incident sparked where I'm at today. My dad went to some meetings. They were explaining about pop-up fertilizers you could put right on the corn seed and 
you really didn't need all that other fertilizer. And from then, it went to pro-farmer seminars where they were explaining what sustainable agriculture was. And it was at those meetings that I met Dr. Dan Scow, Arden Anderson, and Dave Larson. And I would say those three had a large impact upon my farming and also where I'm at today. Could we back up a second? Sure. Dwayne, that when you were mentioning about that year, you the fertilizer dealers yeah. told you you needed to apply more. Did you guys put more fertilizer on that year or not? No. That year, I think we backed off because he had lost money and he didn't have the money. No, that year we didn't put it on, but I think it was that next spring that we started using the pop-ups. And that was just putting fertilizer right on the seed. So what happened? Burn the seed. What happened that next year? It must have been good. I don't remember everything that's been 40 years ago, but we kept doing it. So I would say that that combined with the um, sustainable agriculture meetings that I was going to is what led me to where I am today. Another thing that I did when I went to those sustainable agriculture meetings is I learned the importance of calcium, and I learned the importance of biology. So what I had done about that time, I think it was the next year, is I started soil sampling all of our fields. And I soil sampled them every year, and I sent the samples to Midwest Labs. And I started charting those samples from every field, the total, the average of all the fields. And I started charting that. And of course, when we quit putting fertilizer on as a, it was called plow down, our dealers thought we were nuts. And there was a guy about my age, a few years later, started working for the dealer. And he said, you're mining your soil. And I didn't feel like I was because our yields were still going up. And After I listened to him for about 10 years, then I had 15 years or so worth of of charted soil test. And at that point, I printed them out and I gave them to him. At that point, I never heard anything else about mining my soil. Because if, if you're watching on a video, you can see that here's a chart and our organic matter had went up. You can see that our phosphorus, Midwest Labs, had a P1 and a P2, and they had went up rather dramatically. Our potassium had stayed about the same, which that was fine, because our calcium had went up. As you can see this, it doesn't look that dramatic, but our calcium base saturation went up 5 to 10%. And that's, that's big when you're in the Midwest and you have a 60% saturation, you go to 70 or so. Our yields also went up. As you can see, the corn yield, and I thought I had a bean yield chart here. The bean yields were the most dramatic. Yeah, makes sense. It's because they had a lot more disease issues when they were first planted. And once we had the biology in the soil, we didn't have near the disease issues. And I believe the calcium also helped that as well. So that was where I started, and I want to make the point that was called sustainable agriculture in the 80s, 
and I don't know if it was actually Pro Farmer that coined that term or not, but that's where we were. And, and I would say my understanding and my knowledge grew fairly slow at that point. And another thing, I want to tell you this so that you understand that you know your farm better than anyone else. And that's what I found because I had Dr. Scow give me recommendations to grow a corn crop. I had Dave Larson give me recommendations to do a corn crop, but it didn't really do any better. And so I began to do it myself, and that's when we started seeing results. I don't think it was because I had more knowledge. It was because I knew my fields. I knew what I had been doing, and you don't want to change everything wholesale. You want to make gradual changes so that you can tell what's happening. I think that's an interesting point you make because that's, I know that's something I try to do continually is approach a, a grower, for instance, like yourself with the concept that you're already successful. You know, you're, you have an operation, yes. you have a rotation, even if, even if you don't, even if you're growing a monocrop, what you're doing is working to an extent. You want to improve upon that, obviously, but in order to do that, I think it's, it always is the best. We always have the greatest chance of success at starting where we're at and making incremental changes. Is that right? And that's what you yes. were talking about. One disadvantage I did have using Dr. Scow or Dave Larson is they weren't on my farm. That's different than if you have an agronomist that's actually coming out there every week or so. That makes a huge difference as well. So moving on from there, I started a business. I called it Treaty Soil, and we did consulting work. And the main thing I did was just sold some biologicals. And back to those charts that I showed you, the phosphorus had went up dramatically. It wasn't because I had put it on. It was because the biology had released the phosphorus that's in the soil. And that's what fertilizer companies don't tend to tell the farmer and that is the huge amounts of phosphorus and potassium and other minerals that are in the soil. If I would use Ohio State's typical removal rates for corn and soybeans, I would have taken off the equivalent of over 700 pounds of 0460 and 900 pounds of 0060. I would have taken more of that off than I had put on. And my soil test should have been about zero or negative, but they'd actually went up. Our soil is a living entity, and it was created to be alive. And the chemical products and the fertilizers that we had put on tended to kill the biology. But once you bring the biology back, your soil becomes teeming with life. So I've successful. got a couple of questions back up to when you said you quit originally that year and didn't apply fertilizer right. you ended up having you know pretty okay results so what exactly did you do from there moving forwards to you know talk about not putting a lot of elemental fertilizer dry fertilizer mm -hmm. specifically dry spread on your fields but still seeing your levels go up mm -hmm. what type of practices did you change from that year moving forwards you know the next yeah. 15 20 years how did you do that the main thing that we did was we used less fertilizer, placed more strategically, but also cleaner fertilizers. And they don't 
reduce the soil biology like some of the harsher fertilizers. There's a big difference in fertilizers. And it, I believe it even becomes more important when you're applying foliar fertilizers because when you get a foliar fertilizer, it's got other things, you are immediately changing the chemistry of your plant. And then we introduced the biology. And that was really all. No, I did one other thing. I'm sorry. I added lime. We did lime about everything. And I just might tell this story here. Dr. Scow had always said that when the student is ready, the teacher will appear. And I had one of those moments, and it would have been several years after I had listened to Dr. Scow the first time. But I had a field, I had a landlord that I wanted to keep him happy. So on that farm, I kept putting a 100-pound of potash on the fall before it would go to corn. And finally, one summer, I'm looking at that, and I'm thinking Ohio State would back me up because his farm had higher potassium levels than any other field we farmed anywhere. And I'm like, Ohio State would say, you don't need any potassium added. So I didn't. I didn't add any potassium that fall. The next spring, as the corn came up, it showed potassium deficiency, and that fall, it fell flat. Finally, the student was ready, and I went back to my soil test, and I looked at him again, and it finally stood out to me, the mistake that I had made. That farm had the highest potassium levels, but it didn't get to the plant. Why? It also had my lowest calcium levels. And so as I addressed the calcium on that farm, the need was no longer there to apply the potassium. Another thing that happened, and I didn't even think about it to start with, I thought about it later, was every year the soybeans would come up on that farm and they would look great. And in August, they would just sit there and barely close the rows. After we applied the calcium, those bean yields became as good as any we had anywhere else. What kind of calcium did you apply? We just applied high calcium line, finely ground. It would have been. What was your pH? pHs on that farm were in the low sixes, if quite there. All of my others were in the sevens, which I would rather be six five, six seven. But we had so much magnesium there in Ohio that our pHs were high. Once you had calcium where it needs to be. And that's another thing I might throw in here right now. pH tells you nothing about how much calcium you have. You can have Every liquid, everything has a pH, but not everything has calcium in it. And your soil can tell you the same thing. If, if you have a high pH, does not mean you have enough calcium for your crop. So at that point, as a few years after that, our yields kept going up. And I did have a lung problem, and I thought it would be best to quit farming because of the dust. And so I sold my operation to my son lamb and also about that time it just seemed like god brought something into our life and we moved to washington state one interesting thing that i had done when it didn't seem like dr scow's recommendations were the best thing for my farm was i said if i ever had a high value crop i would work with dr scow so i came to washington and started working with apples and My wife knew more about pruning and spraying apples than I did when I got here. But 
I did. I went back to Dr. Scal and, um, and Wendell Owens gave me the recommendations to take care of bitter pit and honeycrisp apples. And we doubled or tripled the production in about three years' time, and, and we reduced the bitter pit significantly. And so that gave me a good foundation to think, you know what, there's something we can do here. And it was about that time that I had a son-in-law that got interested and so he began to research, and it soon became apparent that he knew more than I did. But that I don't know was... about that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, in many ways, he has a better retention of facts than I do. But that's how we got here, and I think it was 2009 we incorporated Soilcraft. Maybe we didn't incorporate it. That's when we started doing business as Soilcraft. Great story. Great information. Anything else to add? Well, I had another question. Probably have more questions than answers these days. So you talked a little bit about what made you question the mainstream narrative as far as applying fertilizer based on your soil samples. And you begin to realize there was more to the story. There was a biological component that makes so many things available or, you know, whatever. Was there anything along that? that made you start to question some of the other practices when it comes to insects and disease and all the other types of, you know, um, mm. inputs that you used on your farm? Yeah, that's a good question. You didn't listen to Dr. Scow very long until you just, your mind just opened up to what all was really happening in agriculture. And yes, he would have, it would have been through a lot of his teaching that I would have became so aware of, of how the chemicals were affecting our soil. The chemicals are killing biology. And I still, for several years, you know, the next best chemical that killed the weeds, the better. I was, I was all excited about it. But slowly, and this, this happened slowly as I went through the years, you can't just quit chemicals cold turkey. And so we just became a lot more selective in how much we used and how we used it and where we used it. I don't know if that answers your question or not, but yes, that door opened up. And another thing that happened was with the biology, I would have put our bean yields up against any of my neighbors. And I think it was just the health of the bean plant. We didn't have the fusarium and the sclerotonia and all those seedling, sclerotonia is not a seedling disease, but the seedling diseases damping off that, that would kill the soybeans, hurt the stand, and also stun them for life. I had a question for you, Duane, too. So you mentioned that you started working with uh, Dan Scow later when you got your high-value crop. But that, that may have given you the, the freedom or flexibility with the, the higher margin to feel like you could do that. Mm-hmm. But after doing so and becoming more intensive with that, you know, in hindsight, do you wish at all that you think it would have been worthwhile to have started that sooner in your corn and beans? Do you think you would have seen, you know, do you think that would merit? Because I know that's, that's something that's, I deal with often with guys in row crops, rain-fed row crops, where it's like, oh, you know, if I had apples, you know, I could yeah. afford to do that. But you had both. Can you speak to that? Yes, that's a good question. And I don't know if I'd actually thought of it quite like that before. But the way I would answer that is, if Dan Scow would have been on my farm every week 
no-brainer. I think he would have seen the answers. I think he would have seen what I saw. But he was a 1,000 miles away. And the same with Dave Larson. Eventually, Dave Larson's company did have guys in the area. But at that time, I felt like I knew as much as they did. That's not posting. And do you think some of that is, you know, you might agree or disagree that you felt a little alone back in Ohio when you started into this, like you didn't have friends or neighbors doing that. And, you know, something I'm seeing that, that I really like, for instance, in Twitter is you, you see, you see so many farmers even that aren't next door that are collaborating and, um, and even better farmers that are next door. And as we see, you know, this movement growing, uh, we see more and more of that, which can help. So it's not just having a consultant as an advocate, but also being able to have, you know, more people in your region, which, which helps you to be able to collaborate and work together. Yeah, that's so true. Because when my fertilizer dealer, I was the first person that they got ammonium thiosulfate in for. That's standard procedure today. So it's just things like that. I feel like I've been on the edge for the last 40 years, 35 at least. And um, I did want to go a little bit more with that story of, of farming apples. Now, almost all of my apple farm is organic. But, you know, when I was in Ohio in about probably 1987, sometime in that time frame, I went to an organic conference in Ohio. And I just came away from that a little bit sick because the focus of that meeting was don't put it on. And when you don't put anything on, when you aren't stimulating your biology, you produce a crop that is lacking in nutrients. Yeah, they might not have had chemicals on their, on their crops, but they also were lacking a lot of nutrition. And that's what's so exciting today, even about organic production is we have so many tools in our toolbox that it can be a lot of fun. How long did it take you to transition or why did you become organic on your apple farm? When I moved here, I would like to have been organic, but I, I knew that I had a steep learning curve in front of me and I didn't want to learn how to grow apples and cherries the same time as trying to be organic. What was the reason you wanted to be organic? Just to have nutritious, clean fruit. And I'll just throw this out there for what it's worth. In the past, maybe eight years ago, seven years ago, Trent was doing work with a farm and they had a consultant that would give them the chemical wrecks and, and we would give them the nutrition wrecks. And when we get the wreck, I mean, they had multiple insecticides and multiple fungicides in one spray. And that was probably made me about as interested in organics as anything. Because what are we eating? They test all those chemicals separately. They don't test them when they're put together. Yeah, well, thank you for that story. We're getting on. I think we're going to have to split this into a couple sessions, a couple episodes. And so we're sitting at about 26 minutes right now. So I think it's time to uh, end it. This is a great place. Thank you for your story, Dwayne. The next episode, we're going to talk about the vision and we'll introduce the vision statement and, and then we'll go from there. 
So thank you for listening. Uh, Come again. Thank you for listening. It's been another successful podcast. If you have any questions or a topic that you'd like to hear us address, please email us at podcast at soilcraft.com. Until next time, thanks again for listening.